It's a special weekend uh, for Israel in the past and I think for the church today. Um, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, just this past weekend, the Jewish people have celebrated the biblical festival of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And in ancient Israel, Yom Kippur was the one day out of the year that the high priest would enter the innermost sanctum of the temple, the tabernacle originally and then the temple. It was a chamber called, you've probably heard it called, the Holy of Holies, probably a little better translation, the Most Holy Place. I imagine that it was a terrifying day for the high priest and a frightful one for the people of Israel. I'll explain why. Now, there are quite a few components to the practice of Yom Kippur. And uh, because today, temple worship no longer happens in Israel and there's no longer animal sacrifice and all those other things, contemporary Judaism celebrates Yom Kippur quite differently than it would have in biblical times. But for ancient Israel, the tension of the day reached its height when the high priest entered the most holy place. The law of Moses required the priest to wear bells on the fringes of his garment so he could be heard walking. And then he had to have a rope tied around him. And the tail of the rope was to go out of the holy of holies, the most holy place. Why? Well, the high priest was to go into that space in the temple, into that one area of the temple where God had promised to make His presence manifest, and God was to be there. And He was to represent the whole of Israel coming into the presence of God. And if there was rebellious sin in Israel that had not been dealt with the way the law required, then the priest would be struck dead by God. The sign of his death would be the bells no longer jingling. And since no other priest was allowed to enter the most holy place, he was to be dragged out by the rope that was tied around him. Scary. If on the other hand, the, priest was, the high priest was permitted to complete the ceremony and he was able to exit the most holy place unscathed, then that was to be a sign to Israel that God had accepted their sacrifices and had affirmed their community. Now this all happened in the wake of Israel's New Year ceremony, celebration, Rosh Hashanah, it's called. That just happened in September. Uh, well, this month, in September 4th to the 6th. So this was the way the Jewish people rang in the New Year. Quite a way, huh? It is exceptionally appropriate, I think, that our journey through 1 Peter would bring us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 through 10 this weekend. Matter of fact, so appropriate that I didn't even know it happened. I was planning on taking a break from our 1 Peter study for anybody who received the email blast, and I was planning on going to Hebrews because I wanted to talk about Yom Kippur and sacrifice and priesthood, and I didn't think we were there yet in 1 Peter. So I started my week doing that research to talk about Hebrews, and... Uh, and then I said, well, I should see where we are in First Peter. I have this idea there was something in between us and chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And uh, sure enough, we were in the right place by providence. And so I changed course last minute. So if you got that email, it was my fault, not Phyllis's. It's in First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 that Peter would remind the churches of Asia Minor that they were a kingdom of priests 
kingdom of priests. And the title of the sermon series that we're going to begin together this morning is Embracing Priesthood. Embracing Priesthood. And perhaps Yom Kippur will help us to keep the biblical understanding of priesthood before us as we explore this section of First Peter. It's also the reason we're having a baptismal service on the 29th of this month, two weeks from today. And we have one baptismal candidate. And the reason for that timing is because of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. It's such an appropriate time to enter the waters of baptism. I'm excited for that Sunday. We'll finish this series on that day. If you have access uh, to a Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to where we're living here for a while, the epistle of 1 Peter in the New Testament. We're now in chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. And I'm reading from the New International Version. As you come to Him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we're going to stop there for the series. We'll be back to that passage each week. Now, it's at this point in Peter's letter to the Christian communities, remember he's writing to Asia Minor. It's most of modern day Turkey. And it's at this point that he was led to expound on the nature of the Christian community itself. What is the church? Now there is a, uh, uh, a word that we use, theologians use, to talk about this conversation. It's ecclesiology. Have you heard the word? Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is literally a word about the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the Greek word translated church. Now, literally, ecclesia comes from a verb. It means to call out or to be called out. So, literally, what we call church in the Greek is the called out ones. Ecclesiology is a discussion about the nature of the group formed by those that God has called out of the world and called into His kingdom. And there are, you probably, this is not surprising probably anybody, but there are few less dense discussions of who the church is than what we find here in Peter. This is one of the most dense passages anywhere. And those of us who, who were here for three sermons in a row on one verse of 1 Peter chapter 1 know that it's either me or Peter, and I'm saying it's Peter, is the reason that we have to go so slowly. <laughs> And he's not here to defend himself, so we'll take my word for it. The series over the next three weeks for me will be perhaps the most important one that I have preached in my time here at New Beginnings. If, if there is any one sermon series, this short mini-series in Peter would be, to me, the heart of what I believe the church is 
and the heart of what the community of faith anywhere it finds itself in the world needs to be. So, I guess, uh, self-centeredly, I hope you'll track with me. And I know many of you will be at the racetrack next week, but we do record these, so you can listen to them. And I hope you don't skip it if you're not able to be here because you're ministering in other places. But I've wrestled to submit my understanding of the church to Peter. And this is the heart of that thought process. It's actually the reason I chose to preach through 1 Peter is because of this section and one other. So... If I've understood Peter's teachings here adequately, I believe Peter, as he was guided by the Holy Spirit of God, has revealed four descriptions of the church that serve at the foundation of the four essential responsibilities of the people of God in the world. To say it another way, I think Peter has described the Christian community in four ways, and these four ways are at the very center of the role of the church in the mission of God. So I'll give them to you all at once, though we're not going to deal with them all today. And then we'll go through them individually as we proceed in the series. Peter has described the Christian community in these verses as first, a dispersed people. A dispersed people. Second, a diverse people. A diverse people. Three, a living temple. And four, an interceding people. We'll delve into number one today, which is a a dispersed people. Number two next week, a diverse people. And numbers three and four, the week of Baptism Sunday, a living temple and an interceding people. So that's where we're going. What is the church? Who are the people of God supposed to be? What are the roles and responsibilities God has given to His people in the world? What does it mean to be the people of God, the body of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Peter's first insistence, I think, is this. We are a dispersed people. We are a dispersed people. Now, I already highlighted the language of priesthood in my introductory comments, so when I was reading through the passage, I'm hoping that priesthood stood out. It happened twice in there. We saw it in verse 5 and again in verse 9. In verse 5 we read, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Now, for those who haven't spent a lot of time in the church, what I'm about to say will make no sense to you, but believe me, trust me, there are people here who have and need this clarification to be made. So this is really for them and not for you. So, Martin Luther uh, is a Christian reformer. He lived in the 1500s. Um, He's more or less the linchpin that separated Roman Catholicism from what later would become Protestant Christianity. Not entirely, but he gets the credit anyway. And uh, he had sort of co-opted this language of priesthood, priesthood of all believers. And he, he used it to remind the Christian church that we're all equal before God and that we don't need a priestly caste within the church in order to mediate God to us. Now, I don't disagree with the heart of Luther's contentions there. I agree with him. I think he was right to remind the church of that. But his language can actually get us a bit off track when we come to try and understand why Peter is using the language of priesthood in in 1 Peter chapter 2. So we need to set Martin Luther aside for for the moment. I mean, we're following him because I'm reading the Bible. That's what he wanted us to do. But we're setting him aside in his understanding of priesthood, at least for this week. And for those who were here for the very first sermon of this series, it actually happened the last weekend of June, you'll recall that Peter began this letter insisting that Christians were to be understood as exiles scattered throughout the nations of the earth. Exiles. That image really comes home 
in the language of priesthood. And I'm going to explain why. i got to give you a little history of Israel, though, so we get on the same page. And I hope I give you a little piece of information here that maybe you didn't realize before. Uh, you know, maybe not. Maybe you're all careful readers. But I'll try. After God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel wandered in a wilderness for 40 years. That's now part of modern-day Saudi Arabia. And after those 40 years, you can find those stories in the book of Numbers. And after the death of Moses, God led the Israelites under the teaching and leadership of Joshua into a land then known as Canaan. Now Canaan today takes up territory in five different regions that are usually separated out. Um, Israel, Gaza, what's called the West Bank, which I think is still part of Israel, but that region would have been part of this too. And then portions of Jordan and Syria all part of the land of Canaan. And that's where God led the Israelites to go and conquer. Israel today much tinier than the land God gave them originally. And Israel had originally been 12. This is where this new item might come up for you. Israel had originally been 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. You can find that story at the end of, of Genesis. But by that time, by the time of Joshua, Israel had swelled to 13 tribes. Did you know that? 13 and in Israel's new homeland, God only assigned 12 of those 13 territories to populate and to govern. Anybody wants to know how they got to 13, you can ask me later. But there were 13 tribes, only 12 allotments, which means a tribe was left out. Some tribe did not get a territory. And that one that was left out was the tribe of Levi. In the First Testament, under the law of Moses, the tribe of Levi was given no territory in Israel. The tribe of Levi was selected out of the tribes of Israel for a very special purpose to be servants of the tabernacle and later to be servants of the temple and one family within that tribe was set apart to be priests instead of being given a territory of their own the Levites were given sort of pieces of property within the tribal territories of the other tribes and they were therefore scattered throughout Israel essentially the Levites were scattered like salt through a loaf of bread Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 to 2 explains this reality. I'll read it. The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as He promised them. So I'm convinced that this is at least partly why Peter believed that the Christian community should not try to gather themselves together and form some sort of a new Israel or some sort of a kingdom of God on earth. By describing Christians first as exiles in 1 Peter 1.1 and then as priests in our passage today, Peter has insisted that the very nature of the kingdom of God on earth is to have no inheritance among the peoples of the earth. To be scattered. We are to be exiles among the nations. But our exile, and I talked about this that first series, but I've got to push it further now. Our exile is not simply as dispossessed people living as sort of refugees among the nations of the earth. That's not the picture we're given. Our exile is akin to the Levites in Israel. The Christian community is to be understood as a priesthood distributed by God amongst the nations and peoples of this world. Now some will say, well, wait a second here. I mean, we're the church, they're the world. God distributed the Levites among the people of Israel. The people of this world aren't the people of God, so what is the logic? Well, glad you asked. 
God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it was based on that deliverance that He asked them to be His people. And He gave them a land. And He distributed the Levites among them. We're going to talk more about that. But in Jesus Christ, God delivered all of humanity from their slavery to sin and death. All of us. But we have not all accepted the call to be the people of God. But in many ways, the whole world is Israel now because of what Jesus did and the church of the priests scattered among them. I'm not arguing universalism. There will still be final judgment. But Jesus has saved. In His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through Jesus told His disciples that they were the salt of the earth. Now, salt is used for various reasons today. We use it for a lot of things. And uh, it was used for more than one purpose even in the time of Jesus. But the principal use of salt in the ancient world was for a preservative. And I think this preservative function was at the heart of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. And I believe it correlates well with Peter's understanding of the church as a kingdom of priests. In a time before the printing press and before public education and the mass amounts of literacy that come from that whole process. That's where we can thank Martin Luther, I think, uh, for some of that. But before that, uh, the Levites had a unique responsibility in Israel. As servants of the, temp- of the tabernacle and then later the temple, they had a unique access to the Word of God and they were educated in a very specific way. And according to the law of Moses and Jewish tradition, both the Levites and that special group of priests within them They worked in the tabernacle on a rotating basis. They weren't there all the time. So when they were on call of sorts, when they were working, when it was their turn to take care of the tabernacle, they were there and they lived there and they worked there. But when they were off, they would go back to their homes, which were pieces of land scattered throughout the tribes of Israel. Which means essentially that there was always supposed to be a Levite who was accessible to the people of Israel no matter where they lived. The Levites were to know the Word of God. They were to know the proper procedures for making sacrifices, both in the temple and outside of it. And they were mediators of the word and presence of God to the people. The Levites were the salt of Israel. They were called for the people of Israel. That was the reason they were called. They were God's elect ones to keep Israel connected with the word of God and to help ensure that Israel remained faithful to that word. These were some of the reasons that God did not give them a tribal allotment. It's one of the reasons they didn't have their own home. And this was partially why God dispersed them among the tribes. Now, I'm sure there were other reasons. I can think of a few, centralization of power and other things. But I think this seems to have been the larger part of the essential logic. They could not huddle themselves away in a single tribe. They had to be everywhere. The Levites preserved Israel by serving as their connection with the Word and presence of God. And by distributing them among the tribes, God, in a way, was distributing His Word and His presence among the people of Israel. Now, if Peter has called Christians first exiles and then priests, then I believe strongly that this implies that the church must resist the tendency to retreat from the world, to build walls to keep the world out, and behind which to huddle, or to cultivate an us or them, or in us-against-them atmosphere in the church. We must not do that. I believe Jesus' desire for the church is for an us-for-them ethic to permeate our very heart and soul. We're not to build an independent kingdom of God on earth, 
any more than the priests were supposed to build an independent Levite kingdom in the middle of Israel. God did not give them an inheritance so that they could not do that. And God may very well, in time, thwart all of our attempts to build a kingdom on earth Himself or allow them to be thwarted for similar reasons. The Levites were a dispersed people amongst the people of Israel and we are to be a dispersed people among the peoples of the earth. They should not have to come to us. We should be with them. Now, of course, Peter calls us more than Levites. He calls us priests. And there's an important distinction to be made there and we'll get to it over these next two weeks. But the priests were first and foremost Levites and they were the one tribe that had no inheritance in the people of Israel. And that was good. Because when the tribes got destroyed, there's one family line that has persisted. The Levites. You've heard people named Cohen, haven't you? That's the Hebrew word for priest. That family is a priestly family. You know that? Yeah. When God exiled the Israelites from their homeland in the First Testament, it was an act of judgment on Israel for their refusal to remain faithful to the law of Moses. That's why they were exiled. Our exile, the exile of the Christian community to live as resident aliens and priests among the peoples of the earth, that's not an act of judgment on us. It's an act of mercy on the part of God. But it's not mercy on us. And anybody who has lived in hostile territory as a Christian knows it's not that much mercy for us to be put in difficult situations. The mercy that God is distributing among the people of the earth is not for us. Our exile is an act of God's mercy on the world. We are exiled for them. Why? Because God wishes His priests to be scattered amongst all the peoples of the earth. But why? Well, you'll have to come back for the next two weeks to hear all of my response to that, but I'm beginning to answer it today. What is the church? Who are Christians to be in the world? We are a dispersed people, people scattered amongst the nations of the earth. We should not insulate ourselves, retreat from the world, or try to establish Christian cities or towns or villages or nations on earth. Why? Because we have not been given an inheritance here. This is not our land. Our land is in another place. We are an elect tribe of people among the tribes of the earth. We are akin to the Levites. God is our inheritance. We are priests, salted amongst the nations of the earth. We are for the world. We are not for ourselves. However far cultures and societies and nations may drift from God, wherever we are, wherever Christians live, there is hope. There's hope for repentance. There's hope for turning. There's hope for renewal. We, are, as a body, are a royal priesthood exiled here in the capital area of New Hampshire that we might mediate God's Word and God's presence in this place. It does not matter what laws they pass. It does not matter what they allow into their communities. As long as we are here, God is here. As long as we are here, there is hope. As long as we embrace the Gospel, the priests of God are in the land. My role in many ways is to be your minister so that we can all minister to them. We are their priests in the economy of God. Now we're going to explore all of what that means over the next two weeks. You can see why it's an important study for me and we're going to get to more of it. But I want to offer up a challenge today. And uh, if one of our ushers would be willing to go and collect the, um, the kids at Kidsville, 
we're going to invite them to come and have communion with us. So if uh, somebody would do that or make sure Roger knows to do that, we've got about five minutes. I want to offer up a challenge today for us as a body of believers that rises up out of this insight and us being a priesthood, a dispersed people among the people of the earth. If God has dispersed us amongst unbelievers for them, as their priests, then with that comes a certain set of responsibilities. And I don't really feel like I need to delineate what those responsibilities are because I think just about everybody here knows what they are. How do I know? Because you've seen them up to now as my responsibilities. I'm your pastor. And with that vocation and calling comes a set of responsibilities that I've willingly and joyfully accepted on behalf of the people of God. But the challenge I would offer up to each here today is this. Whatever responsibilities you believe your pastor has to you, whatever job description you would write for him or for her, depending on your context, whatever expectations you would have of your pastor, those are most likely the expectations God has of you with relationship to the world. To the non-Christians. To the unbelievers in your sphere of influence. Whether we're thinking of visiting the sick, or encouraging the hurting, or ministering God's grace and forgiveness, or communicating God's word and God's will, or whatever other responsibilities I have in this body of believers. We as a church, as a holy priesthood, have been entrusted with those ministries for unbelievers. Whether they're our neighbors, or our co-workers, or our friends, or our family, or even our enemies. So here's my challenge today. I made a similar one some months back. Don't know if any of you took me up on it, but here I want to make it with more earnestness. Would you pray that God would help you to identify one unbelieving person or one unbelieving family that you could pastor this next year? Would you embrace God's call to identify a family or person who you can help financially, who you will visit when they're sick or when they're hurting, to whom you will minister God's grace and to whom you'll seek to express God's will in action and in word. Will you be their priest? Will you be their pastor? I believe God will guide you if you pray that prayer. In fact, I'm so convinced of that that I believe this is what God is doing in the world. And nothing has undone the work of God in this world more than the church thinking that salvation was about them. It is about us. We are saved but it's about those who are not. It's about the one sheep that's wandered away. I'm glad to be a pastor in a church because I get to be here for you. But that doesn't come with no cost to you. I mean, you pay a salary, I understand. And that's probably enough of a cost in this economy and I do appreciate that. But at the same time, what I give to you is for the world. These sermons are for them. You must take them. We are a kingdom of priests. Let's commit this year to open ourselves to unbelievers. Let's get out there and find ways, however small, to be pastors to the lost, and to the hurting, and to the rebellious, and even to the vile and the despicable in this place. There's a reason. There's a reason that when 
we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He doesn't then give us a citizenship certificate and we don't all pack up our bags and go to some place where we can live in peace and safety and harmony with like-minded Christians under a government that honors God. There's a reason that God is not interested in that. If He was, it would happen. If He was, God can do whatever He wants, right? I mean, if He wants it to happen, it's going to happen. But the reason we don't get that is because it's not what God wants. He doesn't want the church to pack up its bags and hide itself in some big walls no matter how big. He has not given us an inheritance here. He has salted us among the nations of the earth. We are their priests. The worse they get, the more they need us. The darker the place, the more there needs to be a Christian living in that neighborhood. This is who we are. It's who He wants us to be. Let's follow Him this year. It's the Jewish New Year. September, first month. What a great resolution to actually follow the call of Jesus to be priests in this world and to stop thinking about the world as the fallen and us as the chosen and realize that God chooses no one except for the sake of others. He chose Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. He chose Israel to deliver His word to the Gentiles. And He's chosen you and He's chosen me for them. Will we go? That's the challenge today.